Well, good morning, friends. Welcome. Welcome. We're glad that you're here. Um, thank, you for, thank you for coming out uh, for this Cornerstone Forum. As uh, th- this morning, we um, begin to address a, a subject matter that, well, I should say end in some ways, a subject matter that a whole number of you have been studying over the last several weeks on uh, end-of-life uh, issues, Aging Matters has been the Sunday school class that is um, wrapping up today. And, and if you'll notice in uh, the bulletin, just to underscore a couple of things schedule-wise as we get started, next week we have a corporate time of thanksgiving right here in the sanctuary um, for all um, for, for any and all to be able to come to. And I want to urge you and encourage you uh, to be here next Sunday morning in this same time and same space for the opportunity to just give thanks to the Lord. There'll be a, a microphone up front and it will be open mic style. So we're just going to encourage folks. We'll have folks, some folks that are, are planning and preparing to be able to come and share and, and give thanks about what the Lord is doing uh, in their life. But, but we really want to hear just from you, the congregation, about what the Lord has been in doing in, in your life over the last couple of years, maybe even specifically this last year uh, in 2019. And so we're, we're really looking forward to that time together. Th- then we're going to be jumping into another Sunday school class for January 1st through the 15th. So that's a three-week class. You'll notice the blurb about it in the bulletin this morning. It will be on providence, the providence of God, God superintending and controlling all things according to his purposes and ends. That's what we mean in that doctrine of providence. It's about the relationship between providence and prayer. Maybe you've asked the question before, um, if God is in control of everything and he has his own purposes in all things, then why do we pray? What's the, what's the meaningfulness of prayer? What's the, the purpose of prayer? And so our own Tony Giles is going to be spending some time in those three weeks, December the 1st, what's that, maybe the 8th and the 15th or 7th and, and 15th, um, talking through those uh, together with you. And so I just want to encourage you as we go through uh, December to be jumping in uh, to those opportunities to give thanks next week and then for the three weeks that we have, um, we'll spend time in December regarding providence and prayer. But for those of you who have been a part of this uh, study in aging matters, you've been able uh, just looking over. I've not. I've been teaching another class, so I haven't been the the opportunity to be a part of the dialogues each week together. But I understand a number of very practical and important matters related to aging and related to to what it means to die in the faith. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that today uh, as we consider faithfulness in um, all the way to the end, uh, as we press towards the finish line of of life. And today specifically, try to deal with those end-of-life issues, Uh, try to address those in a way that would be biblically considerate and faithful, um, trying to stay close to what would be, I, I think, key matters, key issues uh, related to this, to this um, 
the reality of death and what it means to be faithful all the way uh, to the end. And so I've, I've, there's a handout that's been sent around as I was giving these few opening remarks. Do you all have one? Were you able to get a handout as it was making its way across? Wonderful. Um, I wanted to take some time this morning to work through um, this, this handout with you and to think a little bit about what um, right conduct and, and, and faithfulness would look like in making some, some difficult decisions as we move towards the end of life. Um, issues related to treatment, issues related to care, um, caregiving, um, as we seek to, um, in, in many ways, love our loved ones and love each other in the body of Christ all the way uh, to the end of our lives here and the, the beginning of our lives in the presence of the Lord and the fullness of that, that very reality, shepherding to um, in and through those, uh, those, that season of life. Now, part of the, the goal and hope today is not to be able to get to every single particular bioethic or biotech issue that is out there, because that would, that would need its own series to be able to address. What my hope and plan and, and objective today is, is to look largely at the priorities that one needs to have in view when you are headed towards that final stage of life so that you're thinking biblically faithful in making those decisions, either for your loved ones, if you are a, um, a power of attorney or a surrogate in helping make those decisions, or you're one shepherding towards uh, crafting a living will, or you're at the bedside in, with that loved one in a semi-conscious state, or you yourself are nearing those days and you want to help prepare your family to be able to walk with you in those seasons. We're all at different stages with regards to that. What would the Bible want us to prize? What would it want us to prioritize? Where would it want our minds renewed um, as we seek to walk that path by faith and not by sight? And that's really what our hope and our plan today is in dealing with these end-of-life issues um, and what I hope will be at least a large thumbnail uh, sketch. And then I'll point you to some particular resources that I think will be really helpful to you on a variety of, of, of issues. Now, w w before we begin, I want to I pray um, and ask for the Lord's help and, our blessing, and his blessing in this time. Um, and also then I want to... I want to just note for you after I, I pray, tell you just a, one little quick story of an early church father who I think sort of helps us situate this discussion of bioethics and, um, and end-of-life decisions. Uh, an early church father who, who, who led with mercy and who helped us see the connection between the physical and the spiritual as a, as a deep part of what it meant to be biblically faithful. And so I'm going to introduce that, 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 that character here in just a minute and help him be the one who lays a little foundation for our time together as we look at these issues. So let's pray and then jump in together. Father in heaven, we rejoice over the fact that we are alive in Christ and that today when the dawn um, crested over the horizon and uh, you by um, 
your grace allowed us to open up our eyes and let our feet again hit the ground, um, that that was a gift from you. And that this day is a day of grace. That life is not to be presumed upon, but that it is a, a gift from your hand and one that we are called to steward well, one that we're called to prize and recognize and cherish and nourish and nurture. Lord, we would ask today as we consider the final days of our life and some of the decisions that we have before us, we would ask, Lord, that you would use some of the material that's before us to crystallize better understandings of how to walk in this season of life. And then, Lord, to act it out in a manner that would um, speak of the character of Jesus Christ. Because we want to reveal him even in the way that we die. And so, Lord, seek uh, now us out as we seek your face for truth and for grace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I mentioned a second ago an early church father that I wanted to introduce to you uh, today. And I want to encourage you maybe to do a little bit of research on him because I think he's very, very helpful in thinking through um, the subject of mercy as it relates to the care of one another physically. His name is, is Basil of Caesarea. Basil of Caesarea was, was born in the 330s AD, was a... A very, a very prolific both writer, uh, theologian, pastor, but whose living legacy came to be known as a, a caretaker of those who died. We might say that he was the first palliative care um, pastoral um, chaplain uh, that the, the church had. He devoted so much of his time to those who were sick, who were ailing, who were dying. And in fact, his house became known in the language that we actually have, have derived um, from in our own period. His house became known as as a hospice or a hospital. And if you hear that, that word, you can hear in that word the language of hospitality or the language of inviting or welcoming someone in. That, that was Basil of Caesarea's mission. He was during the age of the monastics, many who were, who were um, going out into the deserts, who were spending time alone with the Lord. Um, he was actually doing the opposite in his commitment to Christ. He was drawing people in. He was doing the work of community. Um, his houses and the series of houses of a number of his parishioners and followers and disciples begin to be known as hospitals. These would be places where someone would not merely be taken care of physically during the final days of their lives, but would be taken care of emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, um, that respect and care and dignity would be given to them over the, the final days of their life. In an age, believe it or not, in the 300s, especially in, in Rome, where life was not taken and prized very significantly in its old age. Um, much, like a, much like the age in which we exist, uh, where old age is considered um, something to try to stay as, as best as you can away from and to prolong your youthfulness as long as possible. 
Um, though the technology wouldn't have been there and the, the, the biotech realities would not have been in place in the third century, there was still a, a great um, sort of compartmentalizing that happened with those who would die. And there was a, a spirit, a kind of euthanasia spirit that was uh, true of the, young, of the earliest of those who were born uh, in the third century, but also of those who were, who were aging. Basel of Caesarea began during a time where the church was growing in prominence in the third century in Rome. The Christians began to be known as the people who cared for those who died, whether they were their own whether they were their neighbors, whether they were Christians or not. Christians were those who cared for those who died. They were the ones who stepped in and led in a ministry of mercy, an extension of actually what they believed to be consistent with the gospel message. That God is concerned about all suffering. And he is concerned about pushing back the effects of the curse as they are manifested and revealed, not simply spiritually, though that's for sure, but also physically, relationally, emotionally, and psychologically, and all others, that God is about wholeness with regards to well-being, which was the spirit of the word shalom, that the fullness of well-being is ultimately where it is that we're headed, that God is not merely saving souls, but he is also in the business of restoring bodies. That the resurrection is not merely a hopeful thought, but a doctrinal reality that is now taking place and that Christ is the first fruits of that resurrection. They took that seriously, um, which I'm not going to speak about this today, but I get this question all the time about funerals and death and the difference between you know, burying a whole body or going through cremation or all of those various processes that we tend to think through with regards to death. Those are important questions. Wish we could get to them all today. We're not going to be able to. But one of the things that the Christians of the early um, centuries, as they thought about illness and death, their, one of their reflections was, where, how can we care best for the body and believing that the body was going to be restored and that God cared for bodies, that we treat them with respect and with dignity. That was, that was a principle of which the early church actually thought in. And the practice of caring for others in a community what began to be a characteristic that was a part of the attractiveness of Christianity in the third century. And Basel of Caesarea was significant uh, in that regard. I think we need to recover the spirit of a Basel of Caesarea in our own day and time. I think there's a loss of that mentality and that spirit. And in fact, I think as Christians, we're often caught up in just as much the spirit of the age with regards to the youthfulness, the, the, the newness, or the trendiness of things. And we too have often neglected that, you know, that crown of old age, that gray hair, those, those years of wisdom, instead of prizing them, instead of looking to them as a reservoir of of insight and of experience and knowledge, looking to them as the, the prime is past and, and longing for a different day. And in fact, even among those who are older, because that culture is so dominant, the feeling of their own dignity and respect as we age tends to diminish as well. What can we do? 
because we are of an older age. And the Bible is actually turns that entire thinking on its head. And it does that because it prizes different things than we do. It values different things than we do. And when you begin to see through the lens of Scripture, it changes the way you approach sickness, the end of your life, and, and even death. Well, I want to take a few minutes to work through some of the basics here that are on our sheet to kind of get us to some principles for, for bioethic uh, decisions. And I think the first thing we need to start with is to be sure that we have a Christian view of death. Be sure that we, we understand what it is that we're talking about. Notice point one, that death entered the world because of the sin of Adam and Eve. Now, for some of you in here, that may seem like, well, yeah, we've studied that before, but sit in that for just a second. What that statement is communicating is that death is not native or normal to the human condition. It's very important to, to recognize that and to honor that and to acknowledge that. Death is a common human experience, but it is not a natural human experience. It is not the way things are supposed to be. In our own time, sometimes you'll hear people say things like, well, death is just a part of life. Well, in one way of speaking, that's true. In another way of speaking, that's not true. We need to ask what we mean by that statement, that death is a part of life. It's become a normal part of our existence post-Genesis 3, but it's not a normal part of life in terms of design, the way things were actually made, which is why you have such a strong reaction to it. And why I have such a strong reaction to it. When we start thinking about death, when we start talking about death, when we start walking with others in that final stage of life, it, it actually affronts or confronts our own um, sensibilities. We're often, we're often awkward, for instance, in and around a discussion of death. It, it, it's to something that doesn't seem at a gut level right to us. I want to encourage you to pay close attention to those reactions as actually a part of the image of God in you. Because God is an always living being, a never dying being in the fullness of his nature and character and you being created in his image, he is a God of life. Your desire for life as opposed to death is built into you. And the death, when death is, comes our way, that sense of grief, that sense of loss, that sense of awkward, how do we deal with this, that sense of, of loss, and the questions like meaningfulness and significance begin to rise up are a part of the reason for that. This is actually the nature of the way things have been made. Thirdly, though, notice death was conquered through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the reality that we live in presently as believers in Christ. Jesus has overcome the grave on our behalf, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That whole chapter he devotes to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and he wants us to know that that is our hope. He even says, if Christ has not been resurrected, we of all people are most to be pitied. In other words, our hope is hopeless if he hasn't overcome the grave, because the grave is referred to in that very passage in other places as an enemy as an enemy that comes knocking on the door of every person. 
So as we look at this, this sort of narrative of death, death invaded, it brought into the world, it's an outsider, it's a part of our common experience, but it's not natural, but it has been conquered through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. How sh then should we view death? How should we look at it? Well, we should consider it first an enemy, not a friend. It's an enemy, not a friend. When it comes and you see that it ravages the bodies and the minds of those in whom you love and it breaks your heart, it ought to. That's an appropriate reaction to it. It is an enemy. It is a robber. It's not for your good in its design. It should be presented to you and understood in your sensibilities as an enemy. That's an appropriate response to it. And yet it's not the only response. But as a Christian, it is not to be feared. Because as an enemy who comes and still does its dastardly deeds to our body, we know that it has been overcome in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we look at it as a defeated enemy. We recognize it as an enemy who at this current state and time will have sway over our own physical bodies and minds and hearts often. And yet we recognize at the same time that it has been defeated, that the death blow has been given. So much so that the language of 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul says, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? And it's put in a poetic stanza in 1 Corinthians 15. It's actually in the language of the Greek, a taunt. It is to make fun of death. Oh, death, you used to have power, but it's as if you've been declawed. You've been defanged. Where is your sting? Where is your victory? Because Jesus has overcome the grave. So this is why in the, the midst of death, you're going to have an, a, a kaleidoscope of experiences. Um, grief, loss, sadness. Then as the truth of God's word comes in, confidence, encouragement, hope, recognizing that this is not the end. This is why at Christian funerals we cry with a smile on our face. We recognize the pain of the moment and the enemy of death has come. And we also recognize this is not the end. And we're not going to adjudicate or judge the situation in the middle of the story. Because we know what Jesus has done and we know that the resurrection is coming. And that's why we smile with tears running down our faces. This is a Christian view of death. This is the way in which we, have, we should understand it as it's biblically informed and as we approach this season of our life to think seriously around these truths and begin to feed on them, nourish our hearts by them. Now, I want you to look secondly at the reality of dying, the reality of dying. So let's you know, get into the basics of what do we mean when we're using this language. Well, I think it's important to say from the beginning that we are all dying from the moment that we are born. At one level, fundamentally, we are headed towards the grave. And that each of us, in one way of looking at it, are at different stages in the path towards death. Now, that's one way of looking at it. Maybe not the most hopeful of all of the ways to look at it, but it should be, I think especially in our time, not be something that's avoided, but something that's brought into our awareness. 
that we have a limited scope of time here on earth. And if Jesus tarries, every one of us in this room is going to die. And we need not, we do, we do ourselves and those around us a disservice when we act like that is not true. And there's no reason to act like that is not true if you believe that death has been conquered. There's no reason to act that way. If you believe that death has been conquered and you're moving from life unto life, to live is Christ and to die is gain, the Apostle Paul tells us in the letter of the Philippians. If we believe that, there's no reason that we shouldn't welcome that very reality into our lives. Now, that needs a lot of care. That needs a lot of, lot of shepherding. Not at every point in time does that awareness need to be immediately accessible to us based upon where our souls are at any given moment. But that is over the course of the Christian life being built in strongly is an important preparation for death. And in fact, we'll talk about preparing for death here in just a moment from now. But where we want to focus most of our time is in these, these second points and then down into section three. When we say someone is dying, we mean that they have entered into the dying process, that the final days are here, that we're on the last couple of pages of their life. The dying process has, begin, has begun. But in the Christian's way of understanding this, the dying process is also a process of living. They are alive. We need not forget that. What we often will look at is that they're dying and it's sort of over, like it's over. Their life, we think of it or sort of step back in our minds even in that way. But instead to say they're living and when we say that they're living, we are actually think of it as the Bible often gives to us as a race that we're running. It speaks of death very often in that way. And when it speaks of the final days, those days where we're moving towards death, how does it speak of them? It speaks of them not as I'm tapping out, not as resignation, but as leaning into the tape. This is why Paul can regularly say things like, though my body is wasting away, my soul is growing stronger day by day. As my body is showing the ravages of sin and is not long for this world, I'm leaning in to the world that is to come. And in fact, that language of he or she is not long for this world is the very picture of a finished line. They are not stopping and dying so much as they are finishing. They are completing. The Bible turns our attention to perseverance. That's where it wants your focus. Focus not on simply loss, nor on things being over. And in fact, when we think about those in eternal capacities, loss and over, those actually eternally aren't true of them. That's true of your present experience. Your present experience is lost and over. There's going to be a separation that's going to happen. There's a place to talk a lot about that, to experience that and nurture that. But when we think of someone as primarily gone or over or past, we're actually not paying close attention to the biblical priorities which is their present, and they've persevered, and their future is bright, and it's with us, that they've gone on ahead 
And one day we will join them as to where they have already gone. You see, the Bible turns this discussion around and puts it much more in a forward-thinking light than in merely the, the light of the loss. So when we think about they're still in the process of living, in some ways we might say they're pressing in uh, to, the, to the fullness of that final moment where they are holding on to the finish line. What does the race, what does the runner do as he, ends, as he comes around the bend on the last lap? He saves his energy reserves, as it were, to make a final press towards the finish line. This is the reality of dying, and it's part of the way that we need to be nurtured as we approach that season ourselves, but also for those in whom we love. Now, thirdly, entering the dying process. Let's get into sort of the process a little bit. When a person suffers a potentially fatal threat, and their condition may be reversible or irreversible. Okay, this gets into more of the decisions that one would have to make in these, in these moments. Um, Someone has a stroke, someone has a heart attack, um, someone has a, has a diagnosis of cancer and it gets to a particular place in the growth of that cancer. Um, there is a kind of condition where one can have a near fatal or potentially fatal circumstance, either through disease or accident, that there is a hope or a prognosis that through medical treatment, Change can happen. Growth can happen. The, this, they're not going to stay in this condition. Um, there was a pastor in our presbytery who had a stroke not too long ago. And I saw him recently at uh, one of our committee meetings and was asking about how he was doing. And though it was a signi fairly significant stroke, the positives was that through the procedures and treatments they've taken, he's been able to regain full use of all of his faculties, which he didn't have, of course, immediately after the stroke. And that's not true for everybody who has that stroke, but it's potentially reversible through treatments. There is other conditions where the conditions are irreversible. From a medical treatment standpoint, there's, no, there's nothing that we have. Okay, we're putting this within the realm of the human reality. There's nothing within the realm that we have that could push forward and make this condition better. And in fact, we usually call this a terminal condition, a situation where someone is moving inescapably, in this case, towards death. So there's irreversible realities in this, in this particular situation. Now, when we're in that circumstance and someone finds themselves, sometimes for either a long period of time or a short period of time, there will almost always be significant decisions that will need to be made over the course of that journey. Um, and I want to look at some factors for us to consider it and then some treatments. Uh, notice number four, two factors in the dying process to really consider. Although we may not be able to know with certainty how close a person um, is to death, we can often determine whether death is imminent or non-imminent, even in a terminal disease. Some of you know my, my dear friend Josh Patrick, who passed away almost a year ago now in, in January. 
and he had stage four colon cancer when he was originally diagnosed. And it was in many ways a miracle that he was still with us after several years, almost four years after its original uh, treatment. Um, in one sense, the doctors told him this condition, there is qualities of this condition that can be reversed or overcome, but the fact of the nature of the cancer that you're experiencing, it's quite likely that this will be a terminal issue. And when saying it that way means you may have a long period of time, there's many treatments that we can have to help your quality of life and actually push back some of the immediate effects of stage four colon cancer. But in the end, it's likely that this will be the means through which you, you die. Um, that nearness to death is a question that we have to approach when we're thinking about treatments. We're thinking about the decisions to make, what kind of machines to use, what kind of actions to take. If imminent death, we usually are thinking in a very short amount of time, hours, days, uh, weeks. We're thinking of a very short amount of time. When we're thinking of a very short amount of time, based upon the nature, we make different decisions typically. If it's non-imminent, and it may be months or it may be years, as I said, was the case with, with Josh. Different stances may be taken. Different decisions may be made in, in order to, to both increase the quality of life that's there and push back the immediate effects of what is, of what is taking place. That may be worthwhile in order to do. So one of the, one of the factors we need to keep in mind is nearness, nearness to death. A second factor we need to think about is consciousness. The, the person's ability um, in that, that moment. Now, a person who's in the process of, of dying may be conscious. They may be uh, semi-conscious. They may be potentially conscious. In other words, the doctors look at their condition and say it's possible they could come back. It's possible they could not come back. They really don't know of the nature of what's there. Or they may be unconscious without expectation of any consciousness based on brain activity or certain functions of organs. The consciousness of a human being, which is, has to do with the quality of their overall health in the midst of that condition, has to be taken into view as we make bioethic decisions. And as we look at some of the, the, the approaches to treatment, we'll see that some of those decisions, uh, as we are thinking biblically about the priorities of scripture, um, help us make those decisions depending on some of these factors. The Bible would sort of guide us, would, would lead us uh, wisely, not by prescribing, but by direction, by, by wisdom and direction. So a person who is permanently unconscious, for instance, in the midst of a dying process, will likely have either a durable power of attorney or a surrogate of some sort who is helping make those uh, decisions for them to continue their level of care. But if they are conscious, even semi-conscious, the ability to engage, um, the doctors along with the family are going to be spending a good bit of time determining how is it we make the decision about what needs to be done. And if you're put in one of those circumstances, how do you help make, how do you step up to be able to serve in those capacities? Or how do you let your family know how you're thinking about these things when you get to such a condition or you get uh, to such a place. Those are the questions we want to look at in section five, the treatment of the dying. The first point in this is we want to first and foremost be asking the question, is there any 
any runway for curative care in this situation. What do I mean by curative care? I mean, is there care that can be given that's going to move this person towards health from the situation in which they're in to a better situation? Is there anything that we can do at the stage in which they're in to be able to move them towards more life? And when we say more life, we may mean prolonged life. We may also mean quality of life or the effects of the disease or of the accident could be mitigated against. But we want to move towards what is going to be most life-giving. I think this is, from a Christian perspective, a priority number one, as we'll look at some of the principles of um, the Christian faith here in just a second to, to show that to be the case. But a curative care is the first line. We want to say, is there anything we could do to move the needle towards health? Secondly... We want to look at symptom care. We want to look at symptom care. In cases where a person is going to die, but we've already looked at the curative care options and there, there aren't any. From a human standpoint, there, there's nothing that we could do to say this is going to move us towards increasing health. The question then becomes, how do we care for the symptoms? The, the ravages of the disease or of the circumstances. Now, symptom care, the desire of symptom care is very much in line with a biblical priority. From the standpoint of the hope with symptom care is that we can improve the experience of the individual in the midst of their dying. Improve the experience. In other words, acting in mercy. Acting in mercy. What is the nature of mercy? To relieve suffering. That's the goal of it. What is God doing for us in the midst of the gospel? I love this line from John Piper when he was preaching at the Lausanne Conference years ago, wind up entering into one of his books, I think Let the Nations Be Glad, maybe in missions. He says, God is concerned about all suffering and the relieving of that suffering, but particularly eternal suffering. <laughs> but particularly eternal suffering. Our God is about relieving the consequences and the realities and the effects of sin. In fact, when we think about the new heavens and the new earth, what is it ultimately going to do, but what's going to bring about fullness in terms of well-being? It's not just length of life, it's quality of life. It's a part of what's in view. That's part of the nature of what the gospel is actually uh, producing. And so when we think about symptom care, we're actually asking the question, um, can we improve the experience or the quality of the person who is in the process of dying? For instance, my grandfather um, died of lung cancer. Um, he, had a, he had a tumor for, for years in, it, in his lungs. First it was small and then it you know, grew and it became a place where it was actually inoperable by the time that they had, had uh, discovered it. Over time, it led to his other organs beginning to shut down, which was the, the nature of, of, of the way the cancer actually um, operated. Um, at some point along the way, um, the, the treatments, the chemo, the, the, the actions that were taken to be able to move him towards greater health and, and cure, curing him, um, the doctor began to say to us, you know what we seem to be doing more than anything with the treatments is prolonging his pain and suffering in the midst of trying to care for him. 
And at that point, you're at a different discussion. Um, there can be a point at which symptom care begins to run out. It begins to have its course. And at this point, there's nothing that can be done to actually move him towards health and treatment. The, at that point, he was uh, early on, you know, a year earlier, he was dealing with shortness of breath. And he was on a, a respirator and on a, on a breathing machine which deeply limited his ability to actually have certain quality of life aspects, but it increased other abilities, like, like breathing and being able to interact with us consciously uh, during those final days. It made sense until we got to a certain point where it actually seemed as if the care or the helping, if we could put it this way, may, may be actually um, either useless or even hurting, as can sometimes be the case. Um, this moves from symptom care to really comfort care. Um, at the end of someone's life where um, they're in the throes of the final days of their suffering, when death becomes in, imminent, maybe hours, maybe days, um, symptom care um, moves to more palliative care, this comfort care. And the main distinction is providing at this point relief for those who are, who are dying. Uh, the, focus is, the focus is not even on mitigating necessarily against all of the symptoms of the disease that's there, but beginning to give comfort um, so that they can finish um, their, their days and making those final days as comfortable as, as possible. In the midst of all of these, curative care, symptom care, Oh, and comfort care towards the end. This, this final care is very important. I think you see this in Basel of Caesarea's uh, ministry as well. Uh, what, what has been called res, respectful care or respect care. Th this is the recognition that as we die, our, our bodies deteriorate on, on multiple fronts and we become those who can't take care of ourselves in the way that we once could. Uh, in many ways, I would say for sure, in walking with my um, sister who took care of my grandfather, she's an RN, she took care of my grandfather during his final days of, of death, and the ways in which I would go and visit and would see her take care of him, whether it was helping him go to the restroom or it was brushing his teeth or it was being sure that when somebody came over, his hair was combed or whatever the situation would be, the goal was to increase their dignity and their respect to maintain their presentation in order to experience as much of normalcy with regards to life as they had become normally accustomed to. Um, that's a very important part of recognizing overall care. And in fact, you, you all know this just in terms of your experience, what a, what a shower and combed hair can do to your spirit. Um, it, you know, we are body and soul union, um, our health is often very much connected to our sense of self and connected to others in relationship. Um, alongside each of these aspects of care, the whole person needs to be in view. The whole person needs to be uh, in view. And, and really, when you think about this, these are, this is really one of the hardest things about, about getting old and about, about heading into that final stage of life um, is that sense of loss of independency. That loss of control that's there. It, it, most, if you've, if you've 
taken care, if the Lord's put you in a place where you've taken care of someone who has, who has died and you were the, their main caregiver for a number of years, you, you know how challenging uh, it is to offer help when they're not ready yet to receive it, even if they need it, because they're not there yet. You understand what I'm saying? And, and you know what a loss it feels like um, to, to have certain things, qualities of life that you've taken for granted as normal, uh, begin to be removed from you. Um, the importance of care is knowing um, to walk those lines with wisdom while genuinely caring for their, not just their body, but their psyche and their soul in, in the midst of that. Um, helping both to protect um, the care of their person, um, but, but also um, to minister in such a way to where they are more inclined by God's grace to, to give over and to do so with, with dignity and respect. Those are really hard lines to walk. Um, in Galatians 6, uh, verse uh, 1, and then later in, in Galatians 6, 5, we were talking about this actually Wednesday night, and, and it just occurs to me that it, it fits here as well. Uh, Paul's very unusual in his instruction in Galatians 6. He says, it's important that we bear each other's burdens. And then he says, be sure you're all carrying your own load. <laughs> now, he means, of course, those in two different ways. When he says to carry your own load, he means that which is, that which is um, of the weight that you can carry. Know your proportions. Know your boundaries. Know, know what your load is. And a burden is when that load has become too much. And you need help. Here's what happens over the course of our lives is our load, our ability to load becomes smaller. Our capacities become smaller. And the burdens needs that diversification. And one of the most challenging aspects is seeing other people have to bear that, that burden. Uh, that's one of the things to really walk in, in terms of, in terms of care. Look at these biblical principles for uh, decisions here as you get, um, as you consider. You know, as we're, you know, we're not getting, we won't get into the details of all of the biotech issues. We just wouldn't have enough time to be able to do that. But these are several things that we need to keep in mind. The first is when we're engaging with those who are in the dying process, we need to respect and, and acknowledge that life is sacred and do everything within our power and ability to preserve it with its respect and dignity and the image of God created in men. That's very important. Um, this is why when it comes to issues like physician-assisted suicide or protection for the unborn, Christians have historically, universally rejected such practices. Um, because actually, here, here's, this is, I think I heard a bell, so I'm going to be careful. Um, this is really important. And this is hard. This is really important. Uh, and I'll just take, I'm going to take my family as an example so you can apply it in your own. But when I saw my grandfather and my grandmother too, who my mom took very good care of until she passed, um, the, the feeling among the one who is dying is often the fear and the frustration of the loss of independency and the sadness about being a burden 
on those who are around you. That's, that is the psychology of it. It is very, very painful. Um, it's, a, it's a swirl of things. It has to do with your own embarrassment, but it also has to do with your own just sadness that you're being a burden to, to, the, to those who are around you. Here's the reality, though. One, one of the things that, it, that happens as we age and as we enter into that dying process is the ministry of the one um, who is dying, one of the things that the Lord is doing to prepare you um, for your passing into eternity is to completely give all dependence upon the Lord. He's literally stripping you of everything you've typically given, given a crutch for. And he's saying, I'm knocking out, as it were, the bar stool underneath your knees, and I want you to relax into the arms of Jesus. That's the only thing you can do. All right? You know what he's also doing? He's stretching everyone around you in a fresh and new ministry that they have never had before. And they are going to bear burdens that they've never had before. And you know what they're going to do? Call on Jesus like they never have before. Do you know your ministry in dying is giving up yourself and letting others care for you? It is. I mean, that's one of the ministries that you have. I mean, we often think, well, I can't do anything for the Lord. There's all kinds of things you're doing for the Lord by allowing people to care for you. They're having to work through all kinds of things spiritually in order to grow in Christ together. Um, I think recognizing that as amidst the dying process redeems it as this beautiful opportunity to actually become more Christ-like. And I can certainly see my sister, myself, and others who we've grown. We've grown having walked that path together. And as we'll probably reflect on in, in a week or so at uh, Thanksgiving together. Well, I, I think that if you can look on your handout, you can see some of the basic things here as we brought, bring this to a close to recognize that God is sovereign over everything that takes place in the midst of this. We are to extend care for the afflicted and we should place our hope in Christ, not in the perfection of our decisions in the moment. Oftentimes we are... Um, we are over-responsible in the way that we make these decisions and consider ourselves as either making a decision or not making a decision to the death of the person or the lack of care for the person. Just, just remember, for those sensitive souls among us who are going to embrace it in that way, like it's you know, going to be the burden for you and ever, forever, just know that God is superintending even the weaknesses in that process and even the mistakes in that process. And you are going to find out in eternity that whatever decision you think could have been made better or however it could have turned out, that he was doing something remarkable in the midst of that that is going to, in time, bring forth real hope, real hope and understanding. It's going to become clear when life to life is going to be the experience of the new heavens and the new earth. So take that into, into account as, um, as, you, as you think of preparing your own heart for death and walking with loved ones in death. Let me come in those resources at the bottom. Let me just note one as we go. Between Life and Death, Dr. Catherine Butler, I named that one at the top. I think some of you have used it actually in the Aging Matters class uh, that was in here. It's on the bookshelf. It is an excellent resource. And one of the things that she will do is go through 
ventilators and feeding tubes and like, I mean, she will do the whole thing from a Christian perspective and will do an excellent job of getting into the weeds of the particulars of the issues, which is a lot more than we're able to do in our, in our time together today. So let me commend you. Do your homework in that and get prepared for eternity and help others get ready to meet Jesus together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the moments that we've shared together, for the truth that we have discovered and explored. We would ask that the testimony of this church would be that of the followers of John Wesley years ago when he was asked, why is it that the movement of the gospel uh, through those who are your disciples is having such effect? And he very simply said, my people die well. Lord, let us die well in Jesus and learn that when we die, we live. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you all.